0: Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. Well, this is Gray, and I'm here with Bo Willman, who is a playwright, producer, director, executive producer, and most recently, uh, the creator of House of Cards on Netflix. How are you doing, Bo?
1: Good. Not a director, not yet. Oh, not yet, but I did hear that you wanted to be at some point. Sure, yeah, that hopefully is in the works at some point along the journey. Yeah.
0: Well, actually, journey is a great word to use, because I do want to talk a little bit about how you got to this point. You didn't even start out as a writer, did you?
1: No, I started out as a painter. Uh, I was painting and drawing before I could read or write. Uh, that's what I thought I was going to do with my life, and it's what I studied in college. Uh, it wasn't until really the very end of college that I started uh, dabbling in writing, and not till uh, a little bit after I graduated that I started to take it seriously as something that might be my vocation in life. Mm-hmm.
0: In, in, now, I, I read that you, uh, you volunteered uh, or, or you worked helping homeless people to get uh, placement.
1: That-, uh, that was one of many jobs that I've had over the years. Uh, Uh, Shortly after graduating, I went first to go work for the Estonian government in Tallinn, Estonia, for the Ministry of the Interior there. Um, That's a story in itself. Uh, Then I made my way back to New York and I I had a a job where my job was to try to find jobs for homeless people, mostly single mothers uh, in shelters who were uh, trying to get their GEDs and, and find meaningful employment. Uh, but I've done everything from factory work to detailing cars, being a busboy, a barista, teaching SAT prep courses, uh, pretty much everything under the sun and, and past the sun.
0: <laughs> and uh, in, at some point you decided that there was, there was more story than you could, tell, than you could do it in a painting, mm-hmm. and you went back to get an MFA in playwriting. Tell me a little bit about that part of the process.
1: Well, my, uh, I guess between junior and senior year of college, I did a fellowship through Yale uh, where I went off and painted in uh, in the middle of the woods uh, in Connecticut for, for a couple months. Uh, and I did a lot of paintings and I came back feeling pretty empty uh, uh, because even though I had a facility in, in the visual arts, I felt like a lot of the work I was doing was uh, pulling the wool over people's eyes. It, it wasn't honest. I wasn't getting to something deeper. So... What I decided to do was to try my hand at writing a play. I'd always loved the theater. I'd always wanted to write, uh, but felt intimidated by it. And I thought it was a perfect opportunity to fail on purpose. That by forcing myself to do something I hadn't done before, I would fall flat on my face. But it would, uh, it, it, that oftentimes is the, the quickest route to the truth, uh, struggle. So uh, it was like learning to draw all over again with my left hand blindfolded. And I wrote a terrible, terrible play. Uh, but it managed to win a prize at Columbia, where I went to school in New York, wh- which I think is largely due to the fact that I was probably the only person that submitted anything. <laughs> um, but, but, uh, but that encouraged me just enough to pursue it. And, and what I discovered in the process of writing the play uh, was that I'd been trying to cram all of this narrative into my paintings, trying to tell big stories. Uh, and at the end of the day, a, a painting is a static image, uh... it's two-dimensional it can't move it can't breathe uh... and and uh... what writing a play did allowed me to imagine a story in real time in three dimensions in flesh and blood that was really exciting to me and while the play was terrible uh... the opportunity to explore um, uh, what I needed to say in that medium opened up a lot of doors creatively, uh, and uh, before I knew it, it seemed like there was no other choice. This is the path I would chosen, and there was no turning back.
0: Mm. Now tell me about how around that time you became involved in a number of political campaigns.
1: Mm-hmm. That same summer, uh, after I'd come back from working on uh, all of these paintings as part of that fellowship, I, a good friend of mine, Jay Carson, Uh, who's still my best friend and and actually the political consultant on House of Cards. Uh, We were both a couple of college kids. He had been working on Chuck Schumer's Senate race in New York uh, that summer, and he said, why don't you come and work on it as an intern? And I thought, that sounds like a wacky thing to do. Why not? Uh, So mostly on a lark. I I began working on the campaign uh, as, as a volunteer, as an intern. Uh, And Jay and I busted our asses uh, for the next several months. Our grades suffered, our lives suffered, but we had a thrilling experience. Uh, That campaign was filled with young, dedicated, smart people, many of whom have gone on to do great things uh, in the political world. Uh, And there was a, some, there's something concrete about a campaign, you win or you lose. There's a certain day that comes along, people vote, and you either get your guy or, or gal elected into office or you don't. Uh, and and that, that was something that was seductive, uh, that sort of adrenaline, that sort of push to the final moment, and we ended up winning. Uh, and, and for you know someone who's 20 years old, you feel like, wow, I actually changed the world in my own tiny little way by contributing to this campaign. Uh, So I was always looking for opportunities after that to work on campaigns. Uh, And Jay went on to a stellar career in politics, which he continues to this day. And whenever he was on a campaign and I had free time on my hands, and it was someone I believed in, uh, he would pull me aboard and and I would work on it. So I went on to work for Hillary in 2000, uh, Bill Bradley's presidential bid in 2000, and Howard Dean's uh, presidential campaign in 2004. Two of those races were wins, two were losses. So... Yeah, you know, batten five hundred I guess.
0: huh. And now that certainly influenced your writing because Farragut North was uh was was that sort of your breakout play? Um that that received a lot of yeah. attention. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I mean I had written several plays by the time I wrote Farragut North and written several plays after before Farragut North got any attention at all. Uh the reason I wrote it is I'd been on the Dean campaign in O three, uh, and that had eaten up six months of my life and I hadn't done any writing at all. So when I came back to New York, I was itching to write. Uh, uh, I had already completed my MFA in playwriting. I knew this is what I want to do with my life. And and the the Dean campaign had been a detour of sorts. So politics was on the mind. Uh, It's a world after four major campaigns. I felt like I knew well. uh, And I decided to write about it. So there was several months where I wrangled with what approach I wanted to take to that world and I finally arrived at the story I wanted to tell and then it came very quickly. I wrote the first draft in about two weeks uh, then then rewrote it for many weeks after that, sent it off to a bunch of theaters they all said no and I put it away and it wasn't until two years later uh, when I finally got an agent that he read my work said this is the play I want to send out first uh, and uh, you know the stars aligned uh, and for whatever reasons Commercial producers uh, got interested, and before I knew it, I had a movie deal with Warner Brothers uh, with Clooney and DiCaprio attached as producers. And when those two names are attached to anything you do, suddenly people want to sit down and meet with you. So having never been to L.A. in my life, I arrived in in over a two-week period, uh, 10 business days, 70 meetings, people offering me work left and right. Uh, uh, I'd gone from complete obscurity uh, to having work Shoved in front of me, uh, seemingly overnight, though there had been a lot of years of hard work to get there. Mm -hmm.
0: And well, tell me a little bit more about what that was like. When when you were having these meetings, these were these were general meetings. Were were they trying to buy the project, or were they?
1: The project was already set up at Warner Brothers. Eventually, uh, it moved. uh, Cross Creek funded it, uh, and Sony distributed uh... but but at the time it was part of a deal with warner brothers so that was already set uh... this was this was mostly people who um, were looking for opportunities to work with me in the future so whether the, it was offering a rewrite or a, wanting me to read a a book uh... so that i might adapt it or uh... you know an article that they thought might be a good idea uh... for a screenplay uh... it, it was it, you know Look, it happens in Hollywood that for whatever reason, someone for a few months is a hot commodity. Uh, and, and I got to be that person for a few months, and it was exciting. And, and uh, it, it feels great when you've been struggling to earn a single dollar writing anything for people to really want to be in business with you. Uh, but, but you have to take it with a grain of salt. I mean, three months later, it'll be another hot commodity, and three months after that, another one
0: yeah so so now you did have uh, uh, George Clooney, Grant Heslov working with you, and it became Ides of March, and I imagine that was actually feature wise relatively quick process. I mean, some features can take ten years.
1: Yeah, I mean, it always feels painfully slow because you want it to get up there on the silver screen as fast as possible, but all things considered from, from the moment uh, I got that first call about the Warner Brothers deal to the film being made and, and released into the world. Uh, that was around a f- four-year process, which, as far as Hollywood features goes, is is pretty fast. Um, I think that's because largely of, of George Clooney. Uh, he's able to accelerate that process. When he wants to do something and he's serious about it, uh, it gets done. It could have gone even quicker, uh, but George made the decision in 2008, when, when he was first thinking about shooting the film, that maybe it wasn't the best time to put it out into the world, because the... the the movie takes a, a dark look at politics and in 2008 which isn't all that long ago if you remember uh there was uh, at least in the united states supreme feelings of optimism hope and change was the order of the day uh our first african-american president had been elected uh and it seemed as though people were fairly optimistic about politics so maybe that wasn't the right environment to release that movie so he held off a little bit and and shot it um you know uh, about a year and a half down the line and it made its way out into the world a couple years later where you know, during a time unfortunately for the world people's uh, jaded views about politics had resurfaced but fortunately for us made for a, a better environment to release the movie.
0: Well and it certainly was. Um, you ended up getting not only an Academy Award nomination uh, Golden Globe, and BAFTA, and um, lots of lots of accolades. Won the for
1: Australian yeah. uh, Academy Award, <laughs> or their version of it, for, yeah. for foreign screenplay. I guess, you know, American films are foreign. Yeah. So. <laughs>
0: and, and so tell me <laughs> about that. that. I, I mean, it, around the world, everybody watches the Academy Awards, and, and he, to even be nominated... Um, did that get you into 70 more meetings, or, or what was that?
1: Well, at that point I was already firmly entrenched with House of Cards. Uh, that, that's what I knew I was going to be doing for the next several years of my life. So certainly there was there was interest, uh, but I had told my agents uh, at that point I, I, I don't have time really to squeeze in any more work because this is more than a full-time job. Uh, I, look it's so hard to make anything in the arts, whether you're putting up a play in someone's basement with 10 of your friends or whether you're trying to make um, you know, a multi-million dollar movie. Uh, it's, it's, it's a titanic effort. Uh, it's it's a, a process that usually, no matter what it is, involves a million obstacles, any one of which can sabotage or torpedo the project along the way. So when you make something at all and get it out into the world and anyone is willing to give you a pat on the shoulder and say good job we like what you did uh... it's a it's you know that's a, a wonderful thing and and so um deeply grateful for uh, the attention that the movie got during award season and the coolest thing of all was being able to take my mom to the oscars uh... when she was growing up in cleveland i don't think she ever imagined that would happen i i certainly never thought it would as i was growing up in st louis and other places so uh you know, that's, that's, that, that trumps any statue you could get.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, and so, so let's rewind a little bit then, and tell me how you came on board the project of House of Cards. David Fincher first uh, was with Meteorite's Capital.
1: David, uh, Eric Roth, who he'd worked on uh, Benjamin Button with, uh, and Josh Tonnen uh, were this triumvirate that had teamed up together uh, uh, with MRC media rights capital who owned the rights to House of Cards. House of Cards uh, is based on uh, a number of novels written by Lord Michael Dobbs that were subsequently turned into a BBC miniseries written by Andrew Davies starring Ian Richardson. Uh, It was three parts of four over three years starting in 1990. Uh, I'd heard of it because if you write about politics at all people will mention this uh, miniseries to you eventually. It was a cult classic in the UK Uh, And so I'd heard about it, but not seen it. I got a call from my agent one day saying, David Fincher wants to speak to you about House of Cards. And I thought that was a pretty good excuse to watch it. Uh, David Fincher is among one of the greatest filmmakers alive, uh, and certainly that America's ever produced. Uh, So I wanted to have that conversation at the very least. I watched it. I loved it. I had a million ideas as to how to make it contemporary, how to make it American, and and most importantly, how to make it our own. Uh, So I got on the phone with Fincher. We shared uh, a lot of the same instincts, decided to team up, and for the next uh, year, I worked on the first episode. Uh, and during that process, we got Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright on board. And when we had a script that we were all pleased with, uh, it was time to find a home. We met with a number of networks, uh, but we ended up going with Netflix, which is more than a network. I mean, it's means international... Um, you know, gargantuan company that is revolutionizing the way people uh, receive content. So uh, Netflix offered two things that no one else had the guts or the resources to offer. One, they, o- they, they guaranteed two seasons up front, which is unheard of, uh, 26 hours, uh, and two, they offered us creative freedom. They said, we're not gonna get in your way, we want you to make the show you want to make. We trust in you, we believe in you, and uh, if you team up with us, it'll be your show. So that was an offer that we couldn't refuse, and uh, it ended up being one of the very best decisions we ever could have made. Wow, Well, and, and
0: there are some, a whole bunch of really unique um, elements to, to that. I interview a lot of network TV writers, and there are so many, I mean, there's so much structure to everything, structure in terms of the way they write, there's there's a just a frantic pace to get things out the door. There's um, I mean you've got to work with the the commercials and then tons of you got standards and practices and you've got tons of layers of network notes. I mean this must have offered you so much freedom,
1: An incredible amount of freedom. And and because I've never worked on a regular network television show, I have nothing really to compare it to. Uh, but. But I certainly appreciate and and can fathom the enormity of the freedom that that was handed to us. Uh, You know, not to be disingenuous, we were in constant communication with Netflix. They were at every table read. They had, uh, we sent them the scripts. They had access to the dailies. Uh, But... Never once did I receive a document with corporate notes uh, that I had to implement. Uh, mostly, the way the communication worked is after a table read, I might go with Cindy Holland or Peter Friedlander over to Craft Services, grab a coffee, and say, "What did you think?" And we'd have a casual, confirma- uh, casual conversation about it. Uh, and uh, sometimes I would take their thoughts, and sometimes I wouldn't. But there was never some sort of decree from Netflix that you must do what we say. Uh, And and mostly, uh, whatever that conversation consisted of was questions. Um, uh, It wasn't really, we think you should do this, we think you should do that. It truly was a dialogue, which was great. And they're very, very smart, insightful people. So um, I welcomed those conversations. Um, In terms of Commercials. We we never wanted to do a show where we had to contend with commercials in the first place. So even when we were sitting down with other networks, they were cable networks that were subscriber based, where we wouldn't have to necessarily deal with commercials. Uh, and and I, you know, simply have no interest in writing that way. Uh, you know, I guess there's the five act, you know, hour long structure for commercials, and you know, I don't think about any script in terms of acts. Uh, uh, very careful thought is put into how each script is structured but not in terms of um, how much soap we need to sell.
0: Mm. And, and actually another a unique part of the process which I think in part was due to the fact that Kevin Spacey was in in England shooting... Um, and, and not shooting,
1: he was he was performing, performing Richard III right. on a world tour.
0: Yeah, and so because of that you actually had a, a longer development process perhaps than you might have had and you were able to pre-write your scripts before shooting. Was that a challenge?
1: Pre-write. I've never. Well, in that in, in the yeah, sense of it, typically yeah, yeah. You're, you
0: write as we you had, shoot. He
1: was doing a world tour for nine months, uh, so he was not going to be available to start shooting until he finished that. So I said, let's get started right away. We can use these nine months. Uh, I hired a, a number of writers. Set up shop uh, in a three story house in Venice, California. I lived on the top floor, the writer's room was on the bottom floor. My commute was two flights of stairs (laughs) each day. Uh, And uh, we got to work. Uh, So by the end of uh, those nine months, we had 13 scripts written. Uh, Now, those scripts were at various stages of maturity, in, in terms of, and by maturity, I mean, you know, some had been rewritten half a dozen times and others were pretty hot off the presses by the time we started production, but we had a very clear idea of what we wanted to do and where we were going. Uh, When we got into production, you respond to things that you're seeing on camera. Uh, For instance, Corey Stahl blew us away. He was always supposed to be a series regular, but uh, his part was not nearly as big in those first 13 scripts as it became. Uh, When we saw him on camera with Kevin, it was electrifying. and we. You know, we all wanted to see more of him. So I thought about ways in the story that we could put him more front and center. The whole storyline of of Peter Russo running for governor uh, was intended to be another character altogether, running for governor. And I decided to conflate those two stories into his story, uh, so that we could we could see more of him. It ended up being a much stronger narrative choice. Uh, Rachel Brosnahan, who plays Rachel Posner, uh, the call girl. In the first two episodes, uh, that was supposed to be it for that character. But as I began to expand the Russo story, uh, she had impressed us. So we decided to take a gamble and see if we could put more story on her shoulders. And uh, it ended up being a great gamble because she was fantastic. And she ended up becoming a major part of season one. So you respond to what you're seeing. Uh, and, uh, and that required page one rewrites and a lot of scripts. It had a ripple effect. Uh, but... Uh, we always knew what the big signposts were and where we wanted to end up by the end of the first season.
0: And so, so House of Cards, and and actually, I, it's it's funny as as you mentioned, th- what pulled you away from painting was the story you wanted to to tell, but House of Cards really feels like a, a tapestry come alive, it, it if you will, like it like it feels like you're you're painting. More and more details here. And then the next episode is a different part of the, of the painting. And, and, and actually, I love the fact that there's no commercials and, and also the fact that with Netflix, they've released them all at once. So if you want, you can, you can watch several episodes at once. Cause as, especially somebody who's not, I'm not American. And so following all the politics is, a, is a little harder. Being able to watch more in a row helps me to track all of the details. Um, but, but tell me a bit about, um, the the themes of the show and and about the, the power was that something that you had in the very beginning or was that something that developed as you wrote
1: it well I don't know how you write about politics without writing about power mm-hmm. uh, even in in comedies about power I mean about politics you're dealing with power uh, I, And ultimately I would say the shows not about politics at all it's mm-hmm. about power and politics folds into that and I would go on to say that <clears throat> uh, I think every story in every movie, in every play, in every novel is about power. We experience power in our daily lives, every one of us, in a myriad of ways, whether it's at the workplace, whether it's in our domestic relationships. Uh, it could be as simple as you're waiting in line for a cab and someone butts in front of you, and how do you react to that situation? There's a p- power dynamic at play there. Uh, I, I, you can name any movie, any story, and I could probably give you some sort of example of how that thematically has to do with power in one way or another. Uh, The advantage of writing about uh, Washington, D.C. is that you are dealing with characters for whom power uh, is their way of making a living. Uh, They're experts at it. They're masters at it. So you get to see power dynamics played at the highest levels. Uh, But the show doesn't relegate itself purely to the political uh, expression of power. Uh, you see it in the marriage between Francis and Claire Underwood. You see it uh, at the Washington Herald or at Slugline in terms of how power plays into the media. Uh, and you see it in in, uh, more, in sort of more lyrical ways. And what does it mean for uh, a woman of privilege to interact with a homeless man? Uh, you know, or, or what does it mean for uh, Claire to visit uh her former security detail in the hospital where you have that upstairs downstairs uh uh dynamic happening but at the same time death is the great equalizer uh we try to approach power from all angles And mm. in, in in
0: terms of um sort of the the writing process uh the the outlining and in planning out the story it it is a very intricate very complicated Kind of story that you're telling over over the 13 and the 26 episodes. Um, do you have boards all over the place that you map? Yeah, up we have these? every
1: sort of board you can imagine: uh-huh. dry erase, cork boards. Uh, we have stuff on up on flat screens. I mean, anything that's a flat space that you can type something on or pin something to or whatever. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I think about story structure very visually, and, and I don't mean uh, what's in the frame. In terms of the camera, although I certainly put a lot of thought into that, but I see the overall structure. You mentioned a tapestry is, uh, you know, sort of like a painting, and and uh, when you paint, you don't paint one little area in fine detail and leave the rest undone. You kind of have to paint within the whole canvas at the same time, and then the detail is arrived at by layers. Uh, but if because if you're just focused in one little area. Uh, and lose sight of the overall composition, uh, then you get something that isn't cohesive oftentimes. Uh, So start out a season, uh, and I only have one season to use as an example, well two, because we're deep into the process of writing season two, but but, um, uh, in both cases uh, we start out with this grid, uh, and across the top is episodes one through thirteen, and down the side is either major characters or, or major story threads. Uh, and I usually walk into that process with a pretty decent idea of some of the very big things I want to have happen and where I want it to end. Uh, and uh, and then assemble the writers and start filling in that grid. And you're talking about big, broad uh, signposts. Uh, so in season one, an example would be, uh, we know we want... Zoe to leave the Herald around here. Uh, we know that we want Claire and Francis to have a blow up around this part of the season. Uh, we know that we want Russo uh, to meet his demise like around here. We know we want to end here. Uh, and then you start filling in the gaps and sometimes you start moving things around because you see the rhythm of the season. I knew I wanted the Sentinel episode where he goes to have the library named after him smack dab in the middle, because I saw that as a pivot, uh, where after after the Sentinel episode happened, the drama really starts to um, move very, very fast. Before that, I wanted it to sort of creep up on you. So you start looking at it that way, and then once you know, we would spend two or three weeks doing that, then you start diving into episodes one at a time, and you beat those out, and you go story thread by story thread, Uh, you say in this particular episode we want Francis to somehow uh, screw up the Secretary of State nomination Uh, and then you start looking at that thread beat by beat and what do those scenes look like and then you move on to the next one Claire is dealing with firing her staff at the CWI what are those beats and once you feel like you've got those threads worked out uh, we then start Putting them up on a board and, and playing with the chronological order. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five. And how do these things line up? What's during the day? What's during the night? Where do they happen? Um, you start to refine what those beats are. You discover maybe I don't need this one, or maybe I need another one here, or the time logic doesn't line up. Or isn't there an interesting parallel that's going on between these two story threads in these two beats, and do I want to put them back to back because it'll resonate more? Uh, so you start thinking about all those things. Then you have all your beats up on the board. Uh, Move to the outline phase. I would assign an outline to a writer. They would essentially turn that board into a prose document, go over it once again, uh, share it with my fellow EPs, get their thoughts, and then move into the script phase. And uh, either I'd write it or I'd have one of my writers uh, write it, uh, write a draft, give notes. They would rewrite. Sometimes I'd give more notes and they'd rewrite again. And then eventually uh, I would take over the script and do my pass, uh, share it with the EPs, get their notes. Uh, then I would do another pass and then we'd do a table read and you know, actors and direct, the director and production will have thoughts. And you, it's a continual process right up to the moment that you're in rehearsal about to shoot the scene. And in rehearsal sometimes we would change lines or... Uh, get rid of something here, or substitute something there, Uh, and then it's really not quite done until post, where you still are writing, because uh, editing is a form of writing. Uh, You're removing things. You might sometimes switch the order of scenes around within an episode, which has an effect on story, Uh, and sometimes you'll find, you know what, we need a little more story here, and you would do some additional photography, or have to do some ADR, or what have you, Uh, so not, not uh, really, not until post is completed and the sp- and the episode is locked is the writing process fully finished for an episode.
0: In in part of that editing, editing, um, Kevin Spacey's asides to the camera I think are absolutely brilliant. But I imagine it must some have people love them, some
1: people hate them. There's very uh-huh. few people that are in the middle. It's and some people hated them and then they, they grew on them and other people loved them at first and grew tired of them. It's, it's a pretty polarizing thing.
0: Do you, do you shoot more than end up in the show?
1: Oh, sure. I mean, in general, you always shoot more than ends up on, on the screen. Uh, and the direct address was something that we really uh, experimented with. Uh, it took us, I think, a whole season to really figure out what works and what doesn't. Um, you know Some of them work better than others and those that didn't work at all, we got rid of. Uh, and there were some cases where they didn't work particularly well uh, but we needed them anyway for for a story point point. Uh, and you just have to live with those and try to edit them down and to their bare minimum uh, I mean Kevin is so extraordinary as an actor that he can pull anything off uh, but when he when when he has good writing to work with he it just sings So uh, so you know, whenever a direct address isn't at its best, it's not because of Kevin, it's because of the writing. At the same time, <clears throat> you have to take chances with these with a device like that, otherwise it'll get stale. So, uh, you know, early on in the season, a lot of the direct addresses were either presenting a worldview, like, uh, you know, I, I have no patience for useless things. That's a worldview. That works, generally, for us. Uh, or they would be... Um, providing some sort of political insight. You know, uh, what a martyr craves more than anything is a sword to fall on. Uh, so it gives you a sense of his thinking tactically uh, as he's in a given scene or, or about to walk into one or just coming out of one. Uh, that, that, that gives you an example of him as a, a master tactician. Uh, that works for us. Sometimes they're just a throwaway line for pure entertainment sake to try to get a laugh, you know. Uh, Uh, I despise children, there I said it, Uh, that, you know, that, 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 that kind of overlaps with worldview and, and, and when you can, you try to hit multiple birds with one stone, worldview, political insight, uh, or, or a laugh. Uh, And, and, you know, there there are times when we use it for expository purposes. If you look at Shakespeare's soliloquies in Richard III, 80% of the texts, when I really analyzed it, uh, uh, is actually expository, which surprised me because they feel so close to the bone um, emotionally. the ones that don 't work for us as well is when uh, Francis is in real time exposing his vulnerability or psychologically uh, or psychological um, turmoil verbally. It, That's not to say Francis shouldn't have psychological turmoil or feel unbalanced or vulnerable at times, but it's much more powerful when we show that than when we tell it. When you see Francis Underwood talk about that, uh, it diminishes him, and it—it's—it nothing can substitute Kevin Spacey showing that in his face and his body language. A good example would be after Claire has left him for a couple episodes, he... He goes outside onto the patio with a beer, sits down, and starts to hum Shenandoah. Uh, And Carl Franklin was masterful in leaving that in a wide shot so that you really felt the isolation as opposed to getting close to his face. Uh, And you just heard this man humming alone in his backyard. Uh, It tells you everything you need to know. And no direct address could ever approach uh, the power of that moment Visually, and in terms of the behavior that Kevin brought to it. Well, and in, and in that, it really is
0: a very unique medium. It, it feels very, very much like cinema, but it's like thir- a 13 hour cinema.
1: Well, we always, none of us had done TV before. We didn't know what we were doing. I mean, Netflix didn't know either. Uh, they had never done TV before. David hadn't, I hadn't. Um, we all walked in as neophytes. Uh, and um, so I think we didn't try to make a TV show we tried to make a thirteen hour movie uh... and it was split up into chapters and those chapters are of roughly equal length uh... but ultimately what we felt confident in was our storytelling abilities we all knew how to tell a, a good story and so that's all we set out to do
0: and you did it pretty economically i mean all things considered with the with the one hour with the scope of the production the numbers that you were able to come in on Pretty good.
1: Yeah, I mean, we are certainly we're definitely not the cheapest show around, but we're we're not the most expensive one either. And uh, uh, David has a very particular aesthetic uh, that that uh, he held himself and to all, all the directors too. Uh, it's filmic, it's beautiful, uh, it is complex, it's classic, uh, and we wanted to make sure that we could do it justice. Uh, so uh, yeah, when you really think about the fact that we shot the equivalent of seven movies in one year uh, with the resources we had available to us uh, and and came in under budget, in fact. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I I think we were uh, miraculously frugal and efficient with our filmmaking.
0: Very, very cool. Well, let's change gears a little bit and talk a little bit about career development for writers. There's a lot of people who watch this podcast are up-and-comers in the industry, and you took uh, not the most common route into the industry. I don't the think industry. there is a
1: common route. There's no formula. Mm-hmm.
0: But um, what would you advise to somebody who wants to, to write, say, for instance, for a cable show like this?
1: At first, I would say don't write. Don't do it at all. I mean, it is a, it's, a, it's a career that is rife with uh, rejection, despair, uh, and with very little chance of success. Uh, Now, if you choose to ignore my advice and write anyway, then that means you were meant to be a writer. You have no choice. You feel compelled to tell stories. And if that's the case, um, God bless you. Uh, It's probably not going to be easy. If you think that if you can't uh, live with the fact that more likely than not, you will never get any recognition or material success from your writing, and you can't live with that, then it's not a career for you. Uh, even if you do experience some form of success and recognition, uh, it can easily uh, disappear in an instant. Hollywood is a fickle place, uh, so you have to always be prepared to go back to that um, now that's the Debbie Downer side uh, <laughs> uh, in, in terms of you know the optimistic side I, you know. I feel like people who write, whether it's for the theater, or whether it's television, or whether it's film, are all part of a very large and eternal organism. And we are all sort of cells in this big amoeba that's trying to tell a story that's bigger than all of us. Uh, We tell the same story over and over about the same universal themes. But each of those cells brings its own uh, DNA and mitochondria to it and and makes it unique. I don't think one should write for a cable network. Like, if your goal is I want to write a show for a cable network, then you're approaching it the wrong way. You should write the story you want to tell, and that story will dictate what medium it belongs in. Uh, And then you should write what is important to you and what you want to watch, not what you think cable executives want to produce. And I'll give you a good example. Um, When I was starting out, I wanted to do a show about Atlantic City uh, during uh, Prohibition. Uh, And everyone was saying to me, no one wants to do period pieces anymore. I mean, The Pacific had just come out on HBO. It cost $200 million, uh, and uh, everyone was turning their back on period pieces uh, and said, waste of time, don't do it. Uh, And so I didn't. And lo and behold, a few years later, Boardwalk Empire comes out. Um, Now, people in Hollywood don't know what they want. They have to pretend they think they know what they want, so they have a plan. But ultimately, they will respond to original and honest material. uh, Because it's louder than any sort of corporate uh, PowerPoint presentation. And that 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 only happens when you write from an honest and true place. Uh and if it's something that that you feel strongly about and you're good, uh you have a shot at other people being drawn to it with the same curiosity you were. Uh so I guess I don't know if any of that qualifies as advice, but that's what I have to say in response well, to your question. Yeah, that's
0: great, that's great. And, and certainly it shows in, in your work and, and uh um, speaking about your work and speaking about uh, letting the story be told in, in however, whatever form it needs to be told. in your company, Westward Productions, which you formed recently, you also do documentaries and you're still producing plays as well. And tell me about the other types of work that you're you're doing.
1: Yeah, uh, well, Westward, I, I uh, started with uh, a good friend of mine, Jordan Tappas, who was a, a former world pro surfer lives out in Malibu. He, he owns Malibu Magazine. He, he uh, uh, founded a, a record label called Record Collection. Uh, has a lot of great artists uh, attached to it uh, and has produced several documentaries. And, and uh, the way we f- the reason we formed this production company is uh, I'm a huge adventure travel freak. I've read pretty much every adventure travel book out there. And I, 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 I came in touch with this guy named Carl Bushby who spent the last 14 years walking from the southern tip of South America to Alaska on foot and then across the Bering Strait on foot and into Siberia and his goal is to be the first person to circumnavigate the globe on foot it will be four continents 36,000 miles and two decades of his life so I interviewed this guy and I did it for Jordan's magazine Uh, and he was sort of stuck in his expedition he'd run out of funding and any sort of support system so Jordan and I decided we're gonna we're going to jump on board with this expedition and and try to get it documented properly and and help him finish. Uh, And thus began Westward Productions, uh, because Carl's always walking west. Uh, And uh, as we started to work on that project, we we both discovered that we wanted to explore and tell the same sorts of stories. Uh, And many of those stories aren't the sort that are are meant to be scripted. I mean that's what I mostly do for a living but I love documentaries. Uh, I mean documentaries make me cry far more often than scripted stuff does. Uh, There's nothing more powerful than the truth. Uh, And so, you know, we began looking for other things to work on. Uh, Another documentary we're working on right now is about uh, Westerly Wendina. Coincidence, their name involves the word West. Uh, But uh, she's a woman who used to be a legendary surfer named Peter Droon, who late in life discovered that she was a woman and decided to get an operation to, you know, become a woman. And it's this incredible journey, not only of this surfing iconoclast, but also someone who um, had the guts to completely reimagine and follow through on a new identity uh, later in life. Um, we're, we're also uh, executive producers on a show, I mean a, a film that uh, Wally Sean and Andre Gregory made with uh, Jonathan Demi, uh, based on their uh, theatrical version of Ibsen's Master Builder. Uh, Jonathan Demme is an incredible filmmaker, of course, uh, and Andre Gregory and Wally Shawne have had a 40-year collaboration both in the theater on film with My Dinner with Andre, Vanya in and 42nd Street, and now this film. Um, so we, we just helped raise some money for that uh, 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 and came in very late in the game, so we're only making a very small contribution. But, but that's the sort of stuff outside of the, the box Material and uh, and stories that we're drawn to, stuff that Hollywood would normally not even uh, glance at, uh, and uh, and I think it's important to pursue that stuff doggedly to keep your curiosity curiosity broad, and and uh, and uh, and Westward gives us the opportunity to do that.
0: Excellent, excellent stuff. And, you and then in terms of yeah. theater,
1: uh, uh, I'm doing. Uh, I have a play that is opening at South Coast Rep in Southern California um, later this month, April 19th it opens. And that's an adaptation of a play called La Parisienne by Henri Beck, who is a pretty revolutionary 19th century French dramatist. Uh, and I've updated it and, uh, well, I mean, kind of completely reinvented it. Uh, I, don't even, I don't think it's fair to Henri Beck to call it an adaptation because I changed so much more inspired by uh, but his work is, is fantastic and uh, a lot of people don't know about him and uh, he was a, a real rebel and so that's been a lot of fun to work on. Pam McKinnon is directing it and Dana Delaney is the star uh, so I'm really excited uh, for that. And, 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 you know, theater's my first love. I will always be involved in the theater. Uh, it's important for me to remain active in the theater uh, because n- there's no substitute for being in the same room with actors, sharing the same molecules with them, and seeing that story unfold before your very eyes uh, in the same physical presence as those people. Um, there's no way to hide, there's no way to fix it with editing or, 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 or a score. Uh, they have to convince you while you're sitting right in front of them. Uh, and that's always been a thrilling experience for me and something that I, I couldn't live without.
0: Very, very cool. Looking toward the future, beyond House of Cards Season 2?
1: I can, I, I never even look more than a month ahead at this point. <laughs> right now, my, my primary focus is pre-production. We start shooting at the end of this month, so that's about as far ahead as I'm looking. Um, I, I mean, you know, we, we'll we be shooting uh, until the fall, and then, uh, you know, at a certain point, we will put Season 2 out into the world, and, uh, you know, whether Season 3 is is something that's, in our cards or not we will know sooner than later um, and you know there's other projects i have in the works you know both in theater and film and television uh that i'm pursuing but i don't want to jinx any of them by uh talking about them on camera right now
0: well <laughs> certainly that's a great place to stand up and I, I really appreciate you taking this time thanks a lot I appreciate okay. it thanks so much hosted by gray jones the tv writer podcast is brought to you by script magazine and scriptmag.com the leading source for scriptwriting information in print and on the web.